Sometimes life is hard. And sometimes life is unfair. And honestly, sometimes I don't like it. I suspect there are times in your life where you resonate with that. We are broken people who live in a broken world among other broken people. And all kinds of stuff happens in our world that we wish didn't. But there are times where it seems as if the the vice is tightening and the pressure is increasing. And we feel squeezed to our limits and we're thinking, I'm not sure I can handle anymore. And one of the things that I guess the word is makes me happy about the scriptures is that you find people saying those same things all over the pages of God's word. There are people all out throughout the story of Scripture that say the exact same thing in one way or another. And one of those places is Psalm 6. The Psalm of David. We have no context for this psalm. Every so often there are some psalms that we know the context. We know why this psalm was written. We know the event that's connected to this psalm. And, and we, I like that because it gives us a, a better handle on trying to understand the psalm. It feels easier to be able to discern why the writer says what he or she says when we know the context out of which it comes. But the majority of the psalms, we have no context and this is one of those. But actually, there is a sense, particularly in this kind of psalm, there is a sense in which, in which what we find in not having context is it doesn't limit us. Sometimes you read a biblical context and you think, well, that's not really my life. Well, here, we don't have that. And we don't have any idea what David is going through. We don't have any idea what is stressing him and pushing at him and squeezing him. We just know that life is. And as we gather today, there are all kinds of things that are pressing us and squeezing us. And there are times in our lives where it feels tighter than other times, but there's stuff. And David, I think, helps us walk through that. And one of the things about about what, what David says here is that really the central issue whether it is a personal issue that he's dealing with or because he's the king and he's got to take control over, you know, looking over the whole nation, the things that are happening. And sometimes for us, it's what's going on around the world that it just seems to have no end of problems. But I think the central core issue that David is wrestling with, and I suspect that you and I wrestle with, is that it feels to David that maybe God is piling on him. God's not really helping him that much. When you look at, at the opening verses, you know, he says, I'm weak, my bones are in agony, I'm sick at heart. I'm worn out from sobbing all night. I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. I mean, he is upset. My vision is blurred by grief. My eyes are worn out because of all my enemies. But he also says, have compassion on me, Lord. Heal me. 
How long, O Lord, until you restore me? When are you going to do something for me? And I love this. You know, the dead don't remember you. Who can praise you from the grave? You know, it's like, Lord, you know, this doesn't go better. My voice is going to be silent. He's crying out to God because in his spirit, it feels as if God is not there. That God is silent. Maybe even absent. And I think one of the great struggles of humanity is not just the fact that we have to deal with stress and problems and things that squeeze us, but it's, it's that, that sense and that wondering and that concern that where exactly is God in this? Why isn't God doing something? Why isn't God revealing himself? Why isn't God showing up? And maybe even, like you get a sense from David, God, it feels like you're just putting more pressure on me than I already have. I think David would say he's suffering unjustly. He's facing things not because he did some great sin, but because he's just gotten into circumstances that are crushing him. And sometimes those are the hardest to deal with. And all the time we're saying, God, where are you? It may sound strange to you, but if you've been around a while, that probably doesn't surprise you that I have strange thoughts. But as I've been pondering this psalm, there's a song that's been going through my mind. It's not a Christian song. It's a song that was popular when I was a teenager. A song written by Gilbert O'Sullivan called Alone Again Naturally. I don't know if anybody remembers that song. It begins, the first verse talks about him going, he's excited about his wedding day, and he gets there, and he's left at the altar, jilted. And the people in the crowd say, well, that's tough. She stood him up. We may as well go home. And he said, just as I did, alone again naturally. And you get to the third verse, he talks about the death of his parents. And he talks about the, 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 the great trauma to his 65-year-old mother who, who had to face the death of the only man she ever loved. And he said, when she died, I cried and cried all day, alone again naturally. The second verse is the intriguing part to me. After he's talked about uh, being left at the altar in the wedding, he says, It seems that only yesterday I was cheerful, bright, and gay. Looking forward to who wouldn't do the role I was about to play. When suddenly it knocked me down and reality came around. And without so much as a mere touch, cut me into little pieces. Leaving me to doubt. Talk about God and his mercy. Who if he really does exist, why did he desert me? In my hour of need. I truly am indeed alone again, naturally. It's a sad, sad song. You know what fascinates me? That song was released in 1972. It's the second most popular song the whole year. Even more so, it, it was the fifth, according to the American Top 40, it was the fifth most popular song in the whole decade of the 70s. Are you kidding me? This is a decade of disco and Barry Manilow. How could that be a more famous song, right? And a few other people in that decade. 
And 147 covers of that song have been recorded through the years. 147 times people have re-recorded that song. Andy Williams, Michael Buble, Elton John, Neil Diamond. I mean, his whole list of people. And I keep, I'm asking myself, why is that? What in the world about this song? This song has no resolution to it. The very last words of the song, I cried and cried all day, alone again naturally. That's how it ends. There's absolutely no resolution to the entire song. It's just grief and pain and death and loss. What in the world would make that song so popular to people? Because it resonates with the human spirit. We understand that. It's not just people in the church who are asking about God. Lots and lots of people are asking about God. They're wondering about life. They're wondering where God is. And what I love about the scriptures is that we're not, we we don't need to be afraid to ask God to. The difference between what David writes in Psalm 6 and what Gilbert O'Sullivan writes in this song is that day is verse 4. Because in verse 4, David begins to grab hold of, of, of of something that is in the back of his mind that he's been taught and he knows is true. And when you come to verse 4, he says, Return, O Lord, and rescue me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Lord, I don't see it right now. I'm not experiencing it right now. I'm not feeling it right now. But I believe in who you are and your unfailing love. It's, it's a difficult Hebrew word to translate, chesed. It, it's such a deep meaning. It's, it's, such a, it, it's one of those words that you just have a hard time putting it into any other language than what it was originally, the one it was originally written in. And that's why you look at different translations and they're all across the board of kindness and loving kindness and steadfast love and unfailing love and love and mercy. You have all these words that people try to use to describe this, this deeply nuanced, significant word. But the one thing we do know about it, it is in many ways the most descriptive word of the nature and the character of God. His unfailing love. His steadfast love, his mercy, his loving kindness. It's a covenant word. There are lots of covenants in the ancient Near East. Most all of the peoples not only made covenants with each other, but they made covenants with the gods that they worship. And those covenants are all legal covenants. If we do this, then you have to do that. And it's a, it's a legal arrangement that we're going to make with you, our God. If we do the right rituals, if we do the right things that we're supposed to do, then you have to respond to us the way we promised. And there are people who say, well, the Israelite covenants are no different, but they are different. The difference is that the Israelite, the covenant that God makes, that Yahweh makes with his people, first of all, he initiates it, not the people. And second... It's not a covenant of, it's not a legal covenant. It's a relational covenant. It's a covenant of love. If it's a legal covenant and the people of Israel say, people of Israel turn on God and run away from him, then God says, fine, you broke it, I'm out of here. 
But what happens? They break the covenant. He doesn't run away from them. He runs after them. That's why it's rooted in grace and mercy and loving kindness and unfailing love. Because this is the nature of God. And in the midst of his pain and his struggle and, and his, his sense of grief and, and even a sense of wondering about being abandoned by God, the handle he grabs onto is, this is who I know God is. He is unfailing love. God, I'm appealing to that. And what is it that David says that gives him confidence that that's true? Get to verses 8 and 9, and David's tone completely changes. And what does he say? He says, the Lord heard me. The Lord heard my weeping. The Lord heard my plea. The Lord listened. We're not very good at listening. It doesn't come naturally to us. For most of us, talking comes naturally. Listening, we have to work at I was reading something this week and it triggered a thought for me that in seminary and my training, I had lots of classes on how to talk. I don't think I ever had a class on how to listen. It's just not natural for us. It's hard. But that's why David Augsburger says that when you think about how we love each other, listening might be one of the most profound acts of love that we can give to another person. You know that moment when, when you're just looking for someone who will pay attention to you? And sometimes, one of, the, one of the most beneficial things of getting over whatever we're wrestling with is the fact that somebody sits in front of us and says, talk to me. And I'm listening to you. I'm paying attention to you. You matter to me. And there's something about unburdening ourselves to this other person and sharing that with the person who is genuinely interested in us and pays attention to us that does go so far into helping us. But it's hard. It's not natural. I mean, that's why A.J. Swoboda says that, I think, he said, I think, wonder if listening isn't the modern day equivalent to foot washing. As we kneel in front of somebody and we listen to their stinky story. And we stay there and we pay attention and we respond appropriately because we care about them and we love them. And David says, this is what God does for us. In fact, the only reason we have any interest in listening is because God listens to us first. God is a listener. Bonhoeffer said, God's love for us is not just revealed in his, the giving of his word, but also in the lending of his ear. And he does. And David, you can sense David coming around. You can sense him beginning that 180 degree turn when he begins to realize that, that Yahweh, in his unfailing love, is a listening God who pays attention. And when you read about God listening in the scriptures, there's always action involved in it. Here he, he says, the Lord answered me. Some of the translations say he received me, received my prayer. The, the word that's used there has, has activity connected to it. 
It's a grasping. It's a taking. It, there's, there's action involved in it. It's not just passive sitting back. And you see that throughout the scriptures. There's a story in Numbers 12 of Miriam and Aaron uh, standing up in front of the people and, and saying, you know, our brother Moses, I mean, he's a good guy, but we're just as good as he is. We should be the leaders here just as much as he is. And the scripture says, the Lord heard them. And stuff begins to happen. The next thing you know, God has corralled the three of them in the tent of meeting. And he looks at, at Aaron and Miriam. He says, don't ever do that again. Because Moses is my man. And in Exodus 3, as Moses stands in front of the burning bush, God says to him, I have seen the plight of my people. I have heard their cries in their slavery. And I am going to do something about it. God's listening is never just hearing. It's never just passive. It's active. And that's hard for us. Because we don't think of listening as an activity. And the evil one whispers in our ears in our difficult moments, see, God doesn't care. Where is God? He's nowhere around. He's not paying any attention to you. And it's in those moments that we need to remember that maybe, maybe God is silent. Because he's listening to us. See, we think talking is the most valuable thing. But the scriptures seem to tell us that listening is. Or at least every bit is important. And perhaps the reason we aren't hearing God is because he is listening to us, paying attention to us, giving us the opportunity to pour out our hearts to him. Because that's often the means of beginning our healing. And in that moment, as we pour out our hearts and he listens to us, then we begin to see him at work. Because we are so blinded by the problems, we can't get past it. Until we begin to pour out our hearts to him and we know that God hears us. And then our eyes are open and our ears are open to be able to see what he's doing. And I think that's the journey that David is taking. And the question in my mind is, how do we get to the place where we can do that? How do we find those handles about Yahweh's chesed? And the fact that he hears and listens and answers. How, how, do, we, how do we know that? How do we, how do we have the place, think it's something in our mind to grab hold of those? It's the spiritual disciplines. Or as John Wesley liked to refer to them and others as well, the means of grace. Because things like prayer and the study of the scriptures and corporate worship and fasting and communion and silence and solitude and the fellowship of believers and prayer groups and Bible study groups and all the ways in which we grow our faith, all the ways of discipleship. These are all not just disciplines that we practice. They are the means of grace of God in our lives. And we we implant those into us. And we need those things because they are often either memory creators or memory joggers for us. It's one of the reasons why corporate worship is so important. Because we live our lives all week wrestling and, and fighting and things. And we come together and we sing great hymns of the faith. And we hear the scriptures read and proclaimed 
And we engage in service. And we get a different perspective. That's why scripture reading and, and prayer and all the various means of grace and the disciplines are so vital to us. Because they implant in us, they build memory in us. If we're going to go, we go through these difficult times, we need a spiritual memory to fall back on. I think that's David's solution. He doesn't say it in the scriptures, but you, you know enough about David to know how vital the disciplines are to him. He has something to hang his hat on. And that's why we spend so much time and energy and, and, and money and, and resources into into the discipleship ministries of our church, to children, like we saw this morning, to our youth, to adults, all the various ways. What we're really trying to do is to build a system of memory in us that we can call on. Sometimes we think that the spiritual disciplines are the point. The point is to pray. The point is to worship together. The point is to read the scriptures. The point is to fast. The point is to do these things. But these things are not the point. They're the means that gets us to the point. The point is relationship with Jesus. The point is is experiencing intimacy with our creator and the flourishing of life that he desires for us. That's the point. And these things help move us in that direction and give us handles and memory to, to experience God's deepest desires for us. Blessing and flourishing in life as he created us to experience. And we need those things so desperately, not just because we're in a difficult circumstance, but because quite frankly... We are always in some kind of circumstance. I'm intrigued by the way this psalm ends. You will notice in the last couple of verses that David's verbs are future tense. The Lord will answer my prayer. May all of my enemies be disgraced and terrified. May they suddenly be turned back into shame. I think David is subtly saying it's not done yet. It's not over. I would like for him to write this psalm having all of that problem disappear because quite frankly, that's what I'm looking for. But it sure seems like David is writing this in the middle of it. It hasn't totally resolved. Everything isn't done. The pressure isn't completely off. He's still dealing with at least some of it. But in the midst of that, he says, I trust Yahweh to be who he says he is. This is the God that I worship. I believe it with all my heart. And I am trusting him and I'm placing my confidence in him, even though I haven't yet seen the end that I'm looking for. That's God's call on all of us. There's a huge difference in the psalm between verses 1 to 7 and verses 8 to 10. And there are some scholars who say, well, somebody must attack that ending on. I don't think so. I think, I think David just came to a different place. But you know, when you read a psalm like that, there's only a little bit of white space between verses 7 and 8. And it seems as if, and we are tempted to think, that all this happens very quickly. 
You know, okay, we, we cry out to God and, and, and he comes and he rescues us and, and we get to this new place very quickly. But the reality is that white space probably represents more of a process than we might realize. Because the call of the gospel and the call to be a disciple of Jesus is a journey. It's not just one moment in our lives, as important as moments can be. It's a journey. It's an ongoing journey. An ongoing journey of trust. That Yahweh is who he says he is. I don't have any idea what you might be facing today. I have no idea the kind of pressure you might be experiencing or the things that you're going through or, your, or the burdens that you feel, not only maybe just not about your life, but about others or about this world. But the question in front of every one of us is in the midst of whatever it is, will we trust that God is who he says he is? Can we believe that? Holy Father, we ask that you would give us grace to see you, to believe that you are who you say you are, and to find hope in trusting you. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.